to Sin City with Nick Manessis and Dane McLean. Live chat about everything cinema, from new releases, iconic films, and plenty more for you movie lovers. Live for CMRU.ca. And now, to the men behind the mic. Welcome, everyone, to Sin City. I am your host, Nick Manassas. Dane will be joining us very shortly. But until then, let's welcome our fourth running guest, Emmanuel Akinola. Welcome back, Emmanuel. Oh, so glad to be here. Thanks. So glad you could join us for our 20th episode. And also, congratulations. You are our longest running guest. Four episodes with you, man. You broke the record. Yes. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm glad to glad to be a guest on here. So before we get to today's topic, um, let's take some you know, time to you know, catch up. Like, how you doing? Like, what you been up to lately? Any new screenplays? Oh, lately I've been taking a break, but uh, I've written I've written a treatment for a next project I want to do. It's like a semi-autobiographical uh, comedy slash drama. Uh, and then, um, yeah, I'm thinking of this idea for a biopic of Albert Einstein. So I've been writing a, a treatment about it. It's a, it's a project of mine I've always wanted to do, and I just felt like this is probably the right time to do it, just to write it out. And to add to my um, my collection of scripts and build up my experience and skills. Nice man, yeah. Like that, a biopic about Albert Einstein. Now that would definitely be Oscar gold for sure, man. <laughs> oh yeah, that's like that's to me. It's like the granddaddy of biopics because you talk you talking about one of the greatest people who ever lived. Mm-hmm. And I've always had this idea of this dream of David Fincher directing it, but Ooh. at this point, it'd be any, any guy, any person would be good for it. Any good director should do it. We'll be able to. Yeah. Yeah. Like I can really see that film getting an Oscar treatment because you know how the Academy loves biopics and historical drama. So yeah. This yeah. Be, I love that. This could be like probably your, your best, your best one in your screenwriting career, Emmanuel. Thanks. I hope so. And then there's, of course, the your new the Justice League script. Yeah. So you've been reading. How? What do you think? Oh, I've only gotten so far to the first three pages, which spoiler alert involving a, a meso at at Star Labs. Like, but I'll get I'll get to it sometime tonight. Like, ten to more pages, I'd say, and I'll give you some feedback on it for sure. But, but from what I saw so far, this looks really, really ambitious, man. Like, good job. Like, it really Thanks. lots of details. Really, it was really lots of love to the lore, to the whole, to the DC storyline. Well done, man. Really yeah, I'm a huge comic book fan, and I just I've always had this idea, at least since 2013, and it's like uh, it's like what I would have done with the with the characters, with the story. And I just feel like um, I like the idea of them facing a, a bad guy that can replicate their own powers, and also play into the themes of like you know artificial intelligence and what it means to be a hero. So. Ooh, and uh, tell me about what were some like 
influences in both film and comics that really inspired this story of yours? Well, off the start is like, I definitely pull from like, uh, Seven Samurai, the Kurosawa's film, because that deals with like seven people that are called to a mission to protect uh, a community. So that was like my starting point. But also uh, just a lot of the comics, like like uh, Greg Rucka's OMAC project, where Batman had this uh, this surveillance system, and you know the Justice League were kind of distrustful of him for for doing that because of his foresight. And how this get bad guy, Maxwell Lord, who's the bad guy in the script, uses that to his advantage, you know, just to, to take control of the world and things like that. And I pulled from Amazo's earliest appearances in the Brave and the Bold back in the 60s and also his run, his appearances in Grant Morrison's run, I think issue 27, I think and JLA from the 90s. So yeah, it's just a lot from places I pulled from. Wow, you have done a lot of research, man. Wow, this yeah. is really ambitious stuff, yeah. And you mentioned this, you wanted this to be in your own universe, so outside of the, the movies, right? The DCEU, right? Yeah, it's, it's what I would have done with the cinematic universe. Like I've already planned like other movies or other stories that I would do or that I would like to do. Um, or, or what rather the, I would have done with this, with the characters, with the story. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'll, I'll give it a read for sure, man. Yeah. Like, thanks. Oh, I'm really hyped. Like this, I think this really should get a, a big screen treatment at some point in the future. Who knows? Um, I don't own the copyright. Warner Brothers does, but hopefully if they do a reboot or, or anything, I'll definitely you know, get my agent to like send it to him and <laughs> be like, hey, I got, I got a script here. Great, man. Yeah. And um, also, uh, yeah, what, what, what do you, any plans, you know, for uh, Thanksgiving, by the way? Thanksgiving, uh, I'll just spend it with my parents, you know, it was, it'd be a nice quality time with my family. Uh, so, yeah. Just, just, just plan to stay with them. It's good, man. It's really good to hear. Yeah. What about you? Mm, about the same. Yeah, going for an outing tomorrow and coming up with plans. What should be our our dinner? Of course, like one would say, it was it's turkey. That's the obvious choice. But we're trying to do something, uh, something more new, like outside the box. That's good. Thanks, man. So, with that out of the way, let's get to today's topic. Jordan Peele. Yep. I know we've been saving this up for quite a while, especially since you, you brought up uh, Jordan Peele and his films quite a lot during our chats, man. So, yeah, I just feel like he's he's one of the few directors nowadays that people should keep an eye on. Like, he's really good. Like, he, I can just tell with the stories that he tells and how he tells them. He's an auteur or he's an artist in his own right. I mean, he's just really well. He's very good from what he does. Absolutely, yeah. Like one of the, the big three, like after Eggers, but before Ari Aster, there was Jordan Peele. Yeah, exactly. Those are three horror directors that people need to keep an eye on because they're, they're creating some majestic stuff. 
absolutely man. And and it was really like shocking in the best way possible that a director, or in this case a filmmaker, who is best known for appearing in com- comedic sketches like Saturday Night Live, was able to pull off a really serious horror drama. Like it's just wow. Never thought a comedian could also do that and horror at the same time. It's incredible, really. Yeah, I think uh, I think his background in comedy helped him a lot because with horror, you, you got to do horror similar because in comedy, you have lots of timing. You have the time your jokes and the punchlines and all that stuff, whereas horror is kind of similar because you have to introduce the audience to the scares, but in a way that is precise and guides them along across his journey. And I feel like the background in comedy helps him a lot with how he does horror. It does, yeah. It shows for sure. Like that's what I admire about Peel's films. Like they know how to balance both horror and comedy. Like it's horror, yes, but it can't always, you know, take itself way too seriously at times. Yeah, for sure. Um, it needs to. He's able to put humor in his in his movies too, but also it makes sense. It's not it's not forced humor, but it's just humor from the the behavior of the characters. It's true, yeah. Like probably the funniest in all both of his feature films is in Us, where the you know the whole fuck the fuck the police, where the you know where yeah. the police, but apparently very poor choice of words. So. Oh, you mean in, in Us? Oh yeah, that's right. Where? Oh, what scene again? Uh, where the <clears throat> the scene where the doppelgangers break into the house of uh, the, the the white family, and oh, yeah. the asks for the police, but the call the police, but you know the the AI the, how, the home security system misinterprets it as a song instead of actually calling the police. Yeah, that's that's great irony because like. It's it's these people. Jordan Peele talks about it, but I guess the film is about like how we have our priorities not straight as Americans. You know, like we have all we have this privilege and first world privilege, and we don't really. A lot of people, I won't say everybody, but a lot of people don't see the harsh lives of, of people that are less fortunate and how we can help them. And so I like that scene because it's ironic of, you know, they need the police at that moment. But since they're so, because we've been so beholden to technology and things like that, and how that technology in that sense didn't help at all, you know, so... Wow, I, that's really an incredible insight. Like I, I never saw it that way. I was too distracted by what was happening in the scene to actually notice one of those themes, which is you know the failed security systems in our neighborhoods. But thanks for bringing it up, man. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, like to your point, and you're right too. Like. Jordan Peele's films, they're not just horror films, but they're also really great social commentary on race, government, citizenship, and how, and how society functions as well. Like, let's start with Get Out. Like, Get Out, by the way, incredible film. It's also a, a satire into how, on basically the issues of racism and class abuse, where we have a middle, a white, fa- rich family as the villain of the film. Like, your thoughts, man? 
Yeah, that film was it was it was amazing because the film was tackling it was tackling racism, but how racism can be subtle. It's not it's not because when he meets this family, you know, they're not you know outright bigots or white supremacists. They're just they're what you could see as like maybe like white liberals or people that that are seen as you know accommodating to black people but then you once he has these interactions with them you see like you know like the racism starts to crackle out in some places like how they talk and what they say in particular you know like a, a example two good examples would be the first one would be when the father was talking about uh, his his father's uh, stint in the Olympics and how he lost to, I believe Jesse Jesse uh, what's the guy's name? I'm strong. Black. Yeah, Jesse. Um, Owens. And you, you can kind of tell there is this undercurrent of anger at that, like he lost a black person. And then the second example was when he was talking with the, his girlfriend's brother. And the brother was saying, you know, with your genetic makeup, you could be a beast, you know, things like that. It's just these little um, microaggressions, you know, that that if you notice, you'll they point at racism, basically. True, yeah. You're absolutely right. Like we we know right from the get go that the family is big, are bigots, but the racism is more, you know, as you said, subtle. Like it's not too much on your nose. Because I think if they did that, that's one way the film would fail if they try to beat us all over the head with the message. So I think it was good to keep it subtle and implicit. Yeah, and it's accurate. I mean, that's how people like them would act. I mean, I mean, I've had experiences to some extent about it, you know. I don't want to talk bad about them, but some some white people, they, they say things without really understanding the implication of what they're saying. Like, or they pass it off as a joke or, you know, their, their attitude is, oh, you're being too serious. But then, like, it all circles back to that ins insensitivity about mm -hmm. the topic, you know, like... Some, some black people don't like to hear those type of jokes or Correct. they feel like that's insul insulting or offensive. And so that happens a lot. I mean, I've had experience with that. Um, and I think I like the film was uh, the film. I like that the film was talking about that. Yeah, like sometimes people, not just white people, can be um, like in a way innocently insensitive. Like, you know, they can say something that offends others without even realizing that they do. And sometimes they don't really care. So, yeah, I see your point, man. Yeah, I have that. Yeah. Oh, well, the, 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 the bad thing is that they might care, but they feel like it's not that big a deal or their their intention wasn't that. But it's some, a lot of times it's not about your intention. It's about what you did. You know, it's like the, the, there's, this, there's this familiar saying, the road to hell is paved with the best intentions. So, like, you can you can say a joke or try to be funny, but, you know, but it could be offensive to a lot of people. So just got to keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important for people to really think first before they say it out loud. Yeah. Yeah. I really have to be sensitive sometimes. I agree. Yeah. And uh, 
after back to get out like i also know if it couldn't even be more subtle i really like the appreciate the the symbolism in the film as we mentioned before like the the teacup that the the mother rose's mother uses to hypnotize chris it's actually the way the the owners would call their slaves to get back home by hitting a teacup basically really wow. i didn't know that i didn't know that yeah and also the symbolism of the cotton mm-hmm. how he used cotton to block the um the hypnosis he used cotton from the chair and he put it in his ears and I was able to block the uh, hypnosis and he was able to escape. So, yeah, there's, there's symbolism everywhere in the film. And uh, the cotton is like what the, like back then, what the s- slaves had to like collect, like co- in cotton plantations. Like- yeah, so basically there was every day they would be in the fields and there was a particular way you had to pick the cotton from the flowers in the in the fields so that because the cotton gin was very popular back in those days a lot of slave owners made money off you know cotton and things like that cotton can be used in clothing everything almost everything i think so that was like their main source of economic aside from other things that was like their main source of economic uh economic advancement so yeah the cotton was most slaves in those days were, were forced to work cotton even if they the hours were long like even if they didn't want to be out there you know it didn't matter from sun up to sundown they'd be out picking cotton and and then the darker skinned people would work more and then the lighter skinned people would would not work would be more house slaves and all that stuff so yeah I did not realize that symbolism until I gave it a second viewing. And yeah, thanks also for bringing it up too, man. And uh, probably the most obvious, I think, would be when Rose is like, she, you notice how she's like eating Cheerios and milk separately, separating the white and the color aside, like segregation, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's also a, a pointing out her her maturity like she i think um i think jordan peele said this that he wanted to show how detached she was and that she didn't really grow as a person because she's so she's so spoiled she's so uh, stuck up in how she lives and she doesn't even care about all the black people that she's used so yeah it made sense that she did that yeah, and I gotta also we also gotta give props to Allison Williams, like the actress who plays Rose. Like she really, she fooled not just Chris, but she basically fooled the audience. Like we all knew her family was off from the beginning, but she managed to hide it very well, make us think she was this innocent young woman before the the big reveal at the end. So kudos for her. Yeah, like I think Jordan Peele chose her because of that. And uh, and what's funny is that in screenings after the movie came out, Allison Williams was, you know, she she knew that she was playing an evil character. But some of the white moviegoers were like, isn't she a victim too? And she had to explain to her, no, she's not a victim. She's evil. And it was hard for the, the white view. Moviegoers to 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 accept that or to understand that, 
and how they're still expecting her to be like the savior or this person that was a victim, but she wasn't at all. So she, Allison Williams called them out on that, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, she, that's just a testament of how well she did the role. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I, I read the quote from the interview. Yeah, like the family, they, they are not, well, they're evil, but Rose has to be the worst out of them because they, like, she she doesn't even bat an eye. She doesn't even care even after her whole family dies. Like, Rose is probably a, despite being a fictional character, I think she's a very realistic except portrayal of a, a sociopath, like a high-functioning sociopath. Yeah, she is. Um, it reminds me of, like, uh, Amy from Gone Girl. You know, you have these these white female characters that you don't want to cross, you know, that that have um, have like inner demons that you don't want to bring out. So, yeah, that was that was scary. It added to the horror a little bit because she's so detached and evil at that point. Exactly, yeah. And Rose, like, much like with Amy, she, and with Chris, she, she doesn't love and she doesn't hate Chris. She doesn't even want him. She's more like, like a tool, which is basically how most sociopaths react to other people, just as tools to be used and then thrown away when they're no longer needed. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy how it's... It just shows you how, um, yeah, and it kind of, I don't think this, this might not have been intentional, but it shows like how white women are, can be part of the problem. Like there's a long tradition of, you know, whenever, even before when, when white people wanted to lynch a black person, for example, the, the white woman would always lie and say, oh, the black person tried to rape me or cat called me and things like that. And so there's a long history of that happening in this country. Mm-hmm. And don't try to talk less of um, some aspects of feminism where white women, they vote, they struck, they wanted to get rights for white women, but it, at the same time, it pushed women of other colors to the margins or they didn't really help as much. So it just, it just puts a spotlight on, I guess, their culpability and the racism. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you on that point, man. Yeah, like sometimes women, there are some women who use their gender like to show that they're vulnerable and that they're the victim. And Rose does that like towards the climax, like when a police car approached, she tried to like frame Chris for, you know, for attempted murder by when he was choking her, a like a, she's a wounded gazelle, basically. Yeah, she was pretending to be the victim. She was like, she changed her voice, changed the pitch of her voice, and was like, help, help, you know. And But it still, thankfully, it didn't work because Rod was there. But, you know, otherwise, he would have been in trouble. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and that, first off, that's really great ways of very expectation. Like, people were, in original screenings, people thought that the, the racist cop from the beginning was in the cop car. But when it turned out to be Rod, people were just so relieved. And, like, that was so cathartic, really. Just when you thought the movie would, like, screw with us, it didn't. Yeah, and originally that wasn't the original ending. Um, Jordan Peele had a more cynical ending where Chris Chris ended up going to jail, yes. but because of um, 
there was a, I think it was after Obama was re- re-elected or something like that, where Jordan Peele changed his mind mm-hmm. and felt the story needed a hero, so he changed it to uh, that ending. Smart choice, yeah. And since we're on topic, first off, I love Rod. Rod, he is like the best character in the whole movie, really. Yeah, he is. He's he's the guy that you would want as a friend, you know, like who always he calls it like he sees it, you know, and it's a I think the the story I think he's a TSA agent for a reason because TSA agents they get a lot of hate, they get a lot of crap. But they're just doing a job, you know, they're just they're trying to keep us safe. And so that's where he's coming from. He's a guy that he's a guy that's always looking to help people. And mm-hmm. in this case, he wanted to help his friend and his friend didn't really listen to him until, you know, till it was too late. Oh, yeah. And that's the thing about Rod, because he's like, he's basically like the audience surrogate. Like, he's self-aware. Yeah. Like, it's like he's that guy who watched too many horror films that he already knows how this crap goes by now. Like, wow. Wow. Yeah, he's one of the most self-aware characters, I, I think. And even though, like, he was made fun of when he went to the police, but you just tell that he was really worried about his friend. <clears throat> and, you know, and I like the scene where he tried to record her, but she wised up and knew that he, she was recording. And so she pretended to be like, didn't you want to have sex with me or something? <laughs> he, had to, he had to cut it off. Yeah. He had to cut it off. But yeah, I mean, he's a great character. Right, yeah, he and also great comic relief because in most horror films, the comic relief character gets killed right away or disappears, but not him. He's probably like that mo- one of the rare instances where adding a comic relief character actually works for the story. Yeah, I feel like him and each character in the, sh- in, the sh- in the film serves a purpose and. Rod's purpose was to be, like you said, the audience surrogate, but also like the um, the person that's that's the rescue, that person that's going to help out in the end. And it turns out he is. He's the one that saves Chris at the end. So, so yeah, yes, yeah, really good. And uh, the horror of the film, like just scary thought, like the thought that you are basically being. You are aware of what's going on around you, but you are like powerless to do anything about it. Like it's a fate worse than death. What they did to them, to those, to the black people that rose and evil. Yeah, and this, what I like about the film is that the film touches on fears that black people can have. You know, like when we go to all white uh, groupings, or you know, we're the only black person there. I mean that. That's that scares us. I mean, if something were to happen, then you know, police probably wouldn't believe our side of the story and things like that. So, I like how the film takes that and makes that a horror element of this black person in this in this environment where his he's kind of disarmed because he's the only black person, and all the other people that are white have the power above him, and he can't really challenge them he does in the end but in in the beginning he still has to like not rock the boat and not because he's a guest he sees himself as a guest so he doesn't want to rock the boat and anything like that but 
I don't know, man. It can be very disarming when you're the only black person in a, in a, in a group, you know, a group of other people at a social event or just just out, just where, wherever. It can be scary. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Like being like trespassing is what he is. It's what it feels like for sure. Yeah. And some and the sunken place, like I feel there's like some symbolism there. That's where they like trap you or the if I remember where they trap the the black person's consciousness. Right. Yeah. So like the woman. um, Yeah, they explained how they did that um i think the grandfather said that no um he was um, he explained why they did that but i think the sun in place is just a symbolism of you no longer being in control of like your circumstances of how the the power of these these rich white people that have this power of your body and what you do and you don't have any more agency and like and you can kind of see that in like history you know like what if you look at history of what white people have done historically it's against blacks as a people and native americans it kind of calls to mind the idea of not not having agency over your body and what you own sometimes what your probably your own property so that's what i got from it the sunken place but I like that, again, Jordan Peele is using these social themes and, and putting a horror spin on them. These social ideas and putting a horror spin on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very clever. Yeah, yeah, and that's really a great analysis, too. Like, it also kind of like how they, back in the times of slavery, where in this case, in a literal and figurative meaning, they, the the character, the black characters in the film, Chris especially, is basically like a slave, like you mentioned, like robbed of his own free will, both mentally and physically. It's, yeah, it's disturbing to think about it, really. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's it keeps it, it can keep you up at night, you know. Um, but yeah, it just works to show to show a social commentary on, and he, he particularly chose. He, and these white these white people aren't like like I said, they're not bigots, they're not white supremacists, but they're liberals. But they're white liberals. But they, the film was critiquing that how white liberals. They 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 want to help black people, but it's this idea of you know there's there's a concept called white guilt, which is viewed negative negatively because it's the view of you oh I have to be the savior of these people or it's, it continuously puts black people in a victim state the way they think or the way they act and so. I think the film was touching on that a little bit. Uh, it's a sociological thing, but I think the film was touching on that a little bit and how the horror is that these people are what you could call friends. You know, they voted for Obama. You know, they're for social change, but they still have the, their own agenda, like their own oh, yeah. agenda and why they want to help you, things like that. So. A wolf in sheep's clothing, basically. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, I love also the decision to make like the type of antagonists the the Armitage family are because in a genre that's known for you know having all types of monsters like serial killers, aliens, or killer clowns. Jordan Peele has shown us that sometimes humans can be the most evil and monstrous beings we can come across in life sometimes. Yeah, he does yeah, he does a good job of that. Um it's it's brilliant. I mean he did it again in, in us, I think, a little bit. But um yeah, he's just taking these simple social ideas and just putting horror in it. It's just amazing how we watch these films and we have to take us a second look at ourselves. Like, what are we doing in our lives? Like, how can we be, how can we be better? Because these films are not, they don't mess words. They're very, they're very harsh social, social commentaries mm-hmm. on this country. Agreed. And we really, we, we, we as a people need to do some soul searching, you know, uh, where we can do things better as a society. Yeah, good point. Yeah, like so basically both his films get on us, they serve also as cautionary tales, wouldn't you say? Yeah, specifically more so us than get out. Well, well they're both cautionary tales, yeah. One is more about racism and the other is about American privilege. Um and when I say American privilege, I mean like you know, the fact that we have a democracy, the fact that this is a free country, the fact that we have running water and electricity and, <laughs> you know, in other countries in the world, they don't have that. They, they Usually they don't have a democracy. Usually it's a corrupt government. Usually, not to say that American can't be corrupt, but in those countries, it, the corruption is more rampant. And people don't have access to daily amenities and things like that. So the thing with us that they're both cautionary tales. Uh, one is about race and one is about privilege, but they both tackle they both tackle the common theme is this country, America, and what it's can be and what it's doing in, in recent years. And I guess it's a cautionary tale of bad things that could happen if we don't, you know, change our act, get our act together. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It definitely shows that for sure. Yeah. How we some, also sometimes we waste our our resources as well, even our people, our own people, especially like how it's our nature to betray one another, which, yeah, it really shows the monstrosity of us intentionally. Yeah. And even the word us, I mean, that has symbolism too. Like us could be US, like yeah. United States, you know, like this is so much symbolism that Jordan Peele puts in his films. It's, it's amazing. Definitely. Yeah. And um, us also shows a way, I, another way I see it's like, it shows how we, how even nicest, the decent people, we even have our, our dark side in us. We have like our own, as the film shows, our own doppelganger that shows our true worth self sometimes. 
That's what the shadow she was talking about meant. That's how I saw it. Yeah, this movie is about the movie is about duality. It's about light and dark, or or how they can be mixed up, you know. Or and again, it, it deals with classism. It deals with um, the haves and the have-nots. It deals with like in order for us. And Jordan Peele said it. It's specifically about American privilege, how a people prosper while other people suffer. And so it calls to mind like, um, and one critic at IGN, Jim Vejvoda, he said like, it's about the other, but it also can be about, there's also a similarity to like the time machine where you had these two races of people, you had the Eloys and the, and the, and the Eloy and the Morlocks, I think. I think they're called Morlocks. And the Morlocks were the ones that were in the in the ground, underground, toiling away, you know, giving electricity and fixing the machinery that the Eloys would would um, would live off. But the dark side is at night, and a Morlock would go to the surface and and take an Eloy and eat the Eloy. The Morlocks were cannibals. So, like, I like how there's this the similarity between the time machine in terms of uh, classes and different um, different social classes. Jesus, wow. I never saw it that way. Wow, thanks. Well, thank you for bringing this up, Emmanuel. Like, that's really, really great insight. Nice, man. No, like, even when I, even I didn't even read that and I already saw the, the similarity before. Like, you had, like, the Eloys and the Morlocks. It's, it's, I haven't read Time Machine. I need to. But I know that's a big point of the book. And the book is also, like, a sociological commentary, too. Uh, it's science fiction, but it's still a commentary. But yeah, those, um, yes, the idea of the haves and have nots. Mm-hmm. Those two sides of the coin. Yeah. And also, this just had me thinking like the, even their locations where the, the tethered and the untethered symbolizes also, as you mentioned, the class and social abuse, how the tethered are basically below the untethered, like how some people, they are the people, the others, how are they are below the other people, authority wise, the, the abuse of power it shows, even from where they're standing. Yeah, and, and um, there's a lot of setups and payoffs in the movie too. But one of the, one of the big setups and payoffs is um, there's a scene where um, where the daughter they're they're driving. I think they're driving to the vocation home, and the daughter talks about like government they poison water supply, and that's a big conspiracy theory that people have that the government poison the water supply or they do something to to mess us up. And that's paid off when, when the red talks about how the government created that place, to, in an attempt to control people. They cloned everybody, to kind of control their souls. But it was a failed experiment, mm-hmm. so they just left all the tethered there. <laughs> and so yeah, there's a lot of when you said when you said that about. Um, Tethered and untethered, and the abuse of power that calls to mind the government and their 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 uh, culpability in that in, t- in the terms of the film's universe. Uh, but yeah, 
There's a lot of abuses that the government does in real life too. So for sure. Yeah, there's so many layers. So many layers. Even now, especially. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um for more symbolism like the the tethered, like in a way I see the tethered are basically the in a bizarre twisted way the heroes of the story in a way because the tethered like as in they're together and the the untethered who are the the actual human beings despite being of the same race and species they are untethered like against each other at each other's throat which again shows the depravity of us humans again oh that the tethered are are, are connected yeah and how we the untethered are not basically despite being actual humans not copies yeah and that ties into um the commentary that um jordan peele was going for he specifically chose for some reason he chose hands across america how that was like this failed it was kind of like a failed experiment in the 80s of trying to raise awareness of of hung, world hunger and how Americans can help, but he used that he, he twisted it and Jordan Peele twisted it and made it into a situation where the te- the tethered used that for their own liberation, or, or rather Red used that because she saw that when she was a kid, and so she took in that inspiration from that from what from what happened in the 80s and used that as a unification amongst the tethered to rise up against their oppressors, I guess. That's true. And so it's kind of like, it's commenting on how that device, that social movement didn't really help anything, but it ended up helping the, the really the, the people that were oppressed, the tethered. So it's a great, um, great irony and, and commentary. What do you think is the symbolism of the rabbits found in us? Well, the rabbits were, um, I don't know, they call to mind like Alice in Wonderland or Tony Down the Rabbit Hole. Uh, I think there's other symbolism too, but I can't think of it. But that's what it reminded me, it reminded me of Alice in Wonderland. And uh, yeah, and it was also, because uh, that's what the tethered, they fed on the rabbits. So the rabbit is seen as like, um, I don't know, it could be like innocence or purity, but um, yeah, the rabbit has, there's some symbolism of the rabbit, but all I could think of was Alice Wonderland and mm-hmm. maybe innocence or purity. Those are really good interpretations for sure, yeah. And another uh, I found in the rabbits symbolism would be how rabbits, they multiply very fast. Like, I think yeah. rabbits, they represent uh, the rebirth, I'd say. Like, how the do- doppelgangers, how they're basically another person, but from another life, how they're reborn in a way, which in this case is. Yeah, like- and, ju- and just thinking about it, there's a lot of the rabbits. So that ties into the doppelganger theme, too, because there's so many white rabbits. They're like, I don't know how they're, maybe they're cloned, too, but. In a way, they represent tethered to some extent. There's just so many of them. You know, all um, all clones, all the same one. Doppelgangers. 
yeah definitely yeah wow like and also uh tying to both films i noticed how in both get out and us they both featured cast members from black panther <laughs> like yeah yeah and those are actors that are you know coming up like winston dukes uh lupita yongo uh Daniel Kaluuya yeah I mean those are those are like good actors that are coming up good black actors that are that are good and looking forward to their future films definitely yeah and what amazed me about Get Out like I really am impressed how Jordan Peele this is his first feature film his directorial debut and he already got nominated for multiple Oscars best picture included yeah and he won best best original screenplay um, yeah because this is a very original idea original concept and it has something to say um yeah i hope i hope one of these days i win a best original screenplay <laughs> you will, but, you will. thanks man thanks i hope you will too thanks man thanks but, and, like, i'm sorry you want to say something oh, oh, yeah it's it's a testament the academy they they wanted to honor the writing because the writing was really good in, in the film it shows yeah and like it really amazed me just as a huge horror fan that a horror film of all films was nominated for best picture it's astonishing really yeah it really is because horror films horror films superhero films and action films are never never recognized in the academy um, for various reasons but it's nice to see that the pendulum the pendulum is moving you know you had films like logan and dark knight being nominated absolutely um, so yeah it's good and get out got nominated even though us didn't get nominated um, but but yeah it's that's good um, oh yeah the pendulum is moving absolutely and like get out is actually the for the first horror film in a long time that actually received a best picture nod like others were uh, the exorcist uh, jaws and the only one that won was the silence of the lambs like this is yeah silence of the lambs is more i would view that as more of a psychological thriller but it has horror elements a little bit but silence of the lambs was was big it was it was a hit, man. I mean, female-driven story. Uh, Jodie Foster and yeah, Jodie Foster and uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins. They they did gave great performances. So I can see why that film won. Yeah, like, and many people they keep saying that you know that the horror genre is dying since the 2010s and that th they were proven wrong with this like the 2010s really was a renaissance for the horror genre with new up new up-and-coming directors screenwriters and that tackled really mature and complex social themes as jordan peele has shown us yeah i mean it's 2010s they, they had a very good um very good resurgence of horror. I mean, you have films like, uh, you have the films like It, and then you had 
films like It Follows or The Lighthouse, The Witch, um, Midsummer. I mean, you have all these these artistic auteur directors, the Babadook. I mean, all these just a resurgence of good horror films, you know, like. So I don't I don't agree with that. The horror film was dead. I mean, if anything, it's, it's being breathed into new life with these new directors, guys like Jennifer Kent, uh, uh, Mike Flanagan, even though I didn't like Doctor Sleep that much, but um, Ari Aster, Robert Eggers, Jordan Peele, uh, the guy that did Shazam. Um, uh, James Wan also. James Wan, and then um, the guy that did Shazam. David uh, Samberg. David Samberg. Yes. So yeah, you have these different these auteur horror directors, and they all have good stories to tell. I mean, they're all great at the, what they do. So, so yeah, I think the horror film is in a good place now. The, the genre is in a good place. Oh yeah, like no more, no more of the torture of porn or the jump scares or too much graphic violence. Like it, the horror genre has been reborn again, as you mentioned. Cool. Yeah, it has. Yeah, it really has. And um, something that kind of bugs me is like how some people, even though Jordan Peele did a great job, some people say that, you know, Blumhouse really knows how to make good horror movies and they tend to, which is true on most parts, but they usually tend, some of them tend to overlook that it was Jordan Peele's own work rather than the production company that made the success of Get Out and Us. Yeah, I think it was Jordan Peele that got that partnered up with Bloomhouse, and then Bloomhouse just ran with it. They want to do horror projects now. Um, they produced some of the horror films. I can't remember which ones, but they've been producing that stuff. I think they produced Alice Williams' next horror film. I think they produced that one. But I can't remember the name. But... Um, yeah, you know, it was Jordan Peele. He was the one that got Bloomhouse put on the map in a way because they produced Get Out. And so, so, so yeah, I agree that they do horror films, but it was, I would have to say Jordan Peele was the one that put them on the map. And now all they do is horror films or, or films that are, um, that are against the grain or films that are unique. Absolutely, yeah. So true, yeah. Like it's, it's mostly good to like Blumhouse has had a hit and miss with some of their horror films for sure, but overall their track record has been going really good, yeah. And uh, also uh, to your point, like Jordan P, like all these guys from Aster, Eggers, they show that the film industry really needs independent directors. We don't always need to be tied to a big industry or name to get all attention. Like we get more opportunity to show our vision to the world. And I think Jordan Peele is one of many who show that example for us up and coming filmmakers and screenwriters. Yeah, he's a great inspiration. Um, I admire all these directors, Aster, Eggers and Peele. I mean, they're, they specifically do a horror genre, but I would like to see them branch out because I feel like they can do other stories too, particularly Aster, I would like Aster to branch out. But um, yeah, I mean, it's they're all inspirations to us, to us too, and to Dane, and to other filmmakers coming up. You know, like 
there's so much story material and opportunities of great stories to be told and the fact that they're doing movies is it's that's inspiration for us absolutely right you are man and this also shows jordan peele has also taught us about versatility like the guy started out as a comedian and he tried something different and look at him now just wow it's amazing yeah he, he's his name is like synonymous with like if you say his name, people get excited, you know. It's an honor like Christopher Nolan. You know, like when people say Christopher Nolan film, a Christopher Nolan film, it's like, oh, you, you know what to expect or you get excited. Now when you say Jordan Peele's name, it's the same thing. It's like, oh, Jordan Peele is doing that? Wow. And he has that added benefit because he was in comedy. Like everybody loved Key and Peele, including me. Like I love that show. Oh yeah. It was just so funny, man. <laughs> but but now that he's doing horror and he does it well, I mean, people are excited to see his name on there. Absolutely. Yeah, very true, man. Wow. And since we're almost to the one hour mark, it's time to say our uh, sort of list of what we think are the scariest moments from each of Jordan Peele's masterpieces. Get out and us. Let's start with you, Emmanuel. What do you think is the scariest scene from each one of his? The scariest scene? Uh, forget out. Forget out. It would have to be uh, whew, this is hard. Uh, it would have to be the beginning scene. That really set the tone for the film when, when um, Lakeith Stanfield's character is kidnapped, and how he's walking. You know, he's minding his own business, walking. But then he, uh, you, you find out later that that was uh, Chris's girlfriend's brother in the car, and he drives up, and the guy walks the other way because he's getting he's getting creeped out. But then out of nowhere, he gets taken by the brother brother just chokes him and drags him away so yeah that really scared me because me as a black person you know it, you know it's like there's certain neighborhoods and places you can't go or you have to be uh, careful about so that really touched me that hit me a lot and i like the scene because it set the tone for the rest of the movie um, yeah, so that would be my scariest scene and also really played on the element of realism like it can happen to just about anyone like walking home alone like all alone at night and where you don't suspect a thing until it's too late like it happens and people keep disappearing yeah it's really yeah and the film the film is about that like black people were 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 um i saw a statistic where 13% of the population, but 34% of people missing are black. 34%. So, Jesus. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't get as much um, media attention as you know, white girls or white people. So, so yeah, I like that the film was talking about that, and that's a topic that needs to be addressed, and more people should be aware of that. Uh, the second scary film and Get Out. I mean, uh, in Us, scariest part for in Us would be, I think when, um, yeah, when when Red, 
when Red reveals or the scene where Adelaide realizes what the place underground is and you see like the lies of the tethered on the underground underneath everybody and how their actions were mirroring our actions that really scared me that like what the heck because you're seeing like this whole other world under underneath us of these beings that are that are discarded and basically living our lives but in completely terrible environment yeah that really scared me oh yeah like it really played on the element on a real element as you mentioned of the whole social and government abuse like it was chilling to people for sure god yep some really really great choices man yeah thanks and for me for Get Out, to me, the scariest scene would be, uh, which is a small one, would be where uh, the scene where uh, Chris is talking to the the maid, uh, George, what's her name? Uh, the maid's name again. Uh, George, George. Georgina. Georgina, yeah. And they're talking in the bedroom and then she's like all throughout the whole conversation she's like smiling and the way she smiles it's just unnatural like inhuman like you get the feeling that something is off about her like has an uncanny valley like this is what when the moment chris realized that he just he's in for a nightmare like really great yeah and she was tearing up like she had like a tear job was coming from her eye and like it was just weird man it's just it's unsettling oh yeah because you know she's just acting so odd she disconnected his phone and like was she was just acting odd and then you later on you realize why but yeah it's just so scary man and it and it gets worse when you realize that she's basically trying to warn chris to get out but she can't do anything about it it's uh, oh god a fate worse than death really just yeah it is and then I, I almost wanted to give an honorable mention for the scariest thing and get out to the scene where uh, Rose is talking to Rod because her expression, like she she was talking to Rod and sh- expressing emotion with and through her voice, and she maintained like a very blank emotionless face the whole time. It's yeah, it was just disturbing. Like really shows. Yeah, like she she was she was able to change the pitch of her voice to make her sound more innocent to kind of manipulate, but that didn't work. So she turned into she turned into a regular voice, which is so not deep, but so cold and detached and yes. almost robotic. Oh yeah, exactly. Lifeless. Yeah. Just, you know, just scary. Just shows also more of her sociopathic tendencies, and it's a testament to Alison Williams' brilliant performance. Like yeah, it is. And uh, for me, my scariest scene in Us would have to be the introduction of the tethered, where Red is and tells basically her story to Adiola, where she says there once was a girl and the girl had a shadow like 
the her voice was just uh, stuff of nightmares. Like she, like she had a lot of broken glass in her voice, like so damaged. It's just uh, freaky. Yeah, yeah, that was very scary, and you could tell the pain she was having by having and speaking. Like it was painful for her to speak because of the life she had. And it's just this deep voice. I think Lupita Yango, she took inspiration from this voice disorder. I forgot what it's called. But people would talk this way if it's like the, the, the vocal cords would be damaged or something like that. Wow, I did not. So, yeah, she pulled from that and it just, it scared the crap out of me, man. It's just like, what the heck? really had the uh, the un- uncanny valley feel to it and really sold you in the fact that about the, the whole doppelganger's nature, how they're basically, well, us, but distorted. Really great. Yeah, it's, it's like the, the Carl Jung's the shadow self, you know, it's like um, the shadow side. And what we... Um, when we talked about Fight Club a few episodes ago, what we the side of us that we choose to hide, or the side of us that um, is evil or has our our doesn't have our inhibitions. And so I like that duality. There's a lot of duality in the film, you know. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it was just really really good. Absolutely, yeah. And also this scene was it really great acting from Lupita Nyong'o. Like she she's a great actress all throughout her films, but never did we think she could be so terrifying. And also it's really great way to introduce us to the film's uh, villains per se. Like there's not I don't really like to call them villains, like they're not really evil, I'd say they're more misunderstood. I see. The tragic monsters is what I'd call the tethered. Yeah, they're all tragic monsters. Um, they can't speak. I think only Red can speak, and, then, and it's revealed why she can't speak. Um, I don't want to give it away, but but yeah, it's it's kind of like there's so many monster elements. There's there's Frankenstein. There's there's little bits of you know Wolfman and like how these monsters are just. They can't, you can't, they can't help but be monsters because that's what they are. And they're not really human because they're the, they're the, the clone side of, um, of us. So it's like, uh, so yeah, it's just really disturbing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Really love that take on, you know, your, what you said about they're basically a part of the Frankenstein parallel. Like they're basically a result of us, like a human error, basically. Yeah. yeah. The failed experiment and they're discarded. So it's like, it's the whole movie is about the idea of the oppressed being able to take revenge on the oppressors. And I, a part of me feels like both of them, Get Out and Us, are both take place in the same universe. They almost have this, a similar, they follow a similar style in terms of how it's filmed, the characters, and the themes as well. Really great ones. Yeah, there's there's a visual style at work, and um, yeah, and Peel. I don't know if Peel's gonna make his own universe, but 
he'd be cool if he did. I think there were some references to Get Out in the movie. I think I'm not sure, but um, but yeah, I mean, they're shot sim- they're shot similarly. Uh, they both have influence from other movies. Um, for Get Out, a uh, big influence was the original Stafford Wives movie in the 70s mm-hmm. and Rosemary's Baby oh. on the sense of using a... Jordan Peele said that in the film, um, Rosemary's Baby is about a woman's ability, a woman's control of her body. And that, that was a big thing for feminism. And then... Um, Get Out is, is using that same idea, but in terms of racism and, you know, in America. And then for us, big influence for me is The Shining. Um, the Shining is a big influence like, in terms of like the opening scene where they're driving to the vacation home. It mirrors the driving of of um, Jack and his family mm-hmm. in the original Shining. Um, Trip to another, Yeah. And then you have, um, I haven't seen this movie, but there's a film called Funny Games about this home invasion, home invasion movie about these these two kids. I think they're twins. They they terrorize his family. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a lot of influences on on those movies. Yeah, such, such great. Like he really created great cinematic worlds for each of these films. Like I learned so much from Jordan Peele, like in terms of scary, but most importantly, like something I've always wanted to learn is how to balance both drama and comedy at the same time, because I don't want also while I'm making, while I'm writing a film, I also want to make sure my film doesn't take itself too seriously sometimes. Yeah, I'm in that same position. Now, uh, I'm taking a break, but eventually I'm going to get back to that project I was talking about. It's going to be more comedy, and I'm trying to think of, I'm already thinking of the jokes and, like, the humor, and I'm going to make sure it doesn't take itself too seriously. It's a, it's a fine line between that filmmakers have to make, which I, you don't want to be parody, but at the same time, you don't want to be too, you don't want to take it too seriously. Bye. Absolutely. More wise words from Emmanuel Aquino. Wow, nice man. Hey, I'm just keeping it real. <laughs> and is that also, would you say that's also where you, uh, what you also did for uh, in your Justice League script too? Like, try, how did you find it? Like, trying to add humor as well. There was at least two parts in the movie, in the script that I put humor, uh, two or three parts, I believe. But I didn't want to make it too um, too humorous because a lot of comic books are serious. Like you don't really see comedy in comic books, and I think that's what Marvel did differently. Uh-huh. It worked for Marvel because you know they 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 it worked because you know part of the audience are kids, and kids don't respond to a movie that takes itself seriously. No. Um, but yeah, but. There's at least two parts in the script where I did pre humor. And I hope you'll laugh when you'll see it. But. Of course, will be, man. Yeah. I'll give it a look tonight, actually, and I'll, I'll send you also my, my thoughts on it, which I'm sure, by the way, I already know it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Thank yes. you, man. I, I put a lot of work into it. Um, 
It was a fun exercise. It was a fun exercise. Oh, I bet it was. Yeah. And uh, I uh, gotta go because I have dinner soon with my parents. But I think we we really tackled everything there is to know about Jordan Peele and his two feature films, wouldn't you say? Yeah, we did. We covered a lot of ground. Yeah, so this has been Sin City and with our fourth returning guest, Emmanuel Akinola, who will be coming back with many, many, many more episodes here on today's show. Thank you so much for coming here, Emmanuel. Of course. Glad to be here. For our 20th episode. Nice. Until then, this has been Sin City. See you next week, same time as always, here, live for cmru.ca. Bye, Emmanuel. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Good luck.